directionally correct. A people on the next podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Amber West. Scott, I feel like you're always in a like you actually ever go home it's just a green screen i'm just i don't actually travel no 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 this is is very kind of rare uh occurrence but yeah it's been uh especially the length of this podcast i've been in different location almost every week yeah i feel like we have you're like where's waldo and we have to fill people in every week just running keeping on the lamb like Forrest yeah. Gump, just going to a different city. <laughs> keep, keep people guessing. Well, so just to not keep our audience guessing <laughs> as to who you are, Amber, do you want me to introduce you real quick? Yeah, go for it, Cole. I, I thought, um, so one of the things that we do on the podcast, we ask the, the guests to send over kind of a little bit of a bio. And I really liked yours, Amber. It was, it says, Amber is a formal former social worker turned IO psychologist who discovered through her work in people analytics that she really did like convincing others to change just in the business sense, not with life choices, <laughs> which led her to her current role in HR tech sales for and consulting at a company called Crosscheck. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. I thought that was so really intriguing because you know, the reason why I, I wanted to have you on the podcast beyond just the fact that I think you're awesome, Amber, and I, I've really enjoyed our friendship over the years. But um, I, it's, it's that somebody who's made this transition from kind of an internal consultant to external, but not just to external, because I think that's still pretty rare, but it's not as rare as somebody who's going truly fully into the product function or into the sales function or that has kind of, you know, really those level of responsibilities for a firm. And so really hoping to, maybe we can dig into that at some point in the podcast today, but um, any of your, your history that you'd like to share with the audience that you think would be helpful for them to know? Um, I mean, I, people are always surprised to hear my background. I don't think I'm that unique, but people are always surprised to hear that I used to be a social worker. And then became went back to grad school in my 30s for higher psychology, went into people analytics, um, and essentially like Swift Notes is through that I did a ton of just internal change in that role. There was a, a ton of work to do in that role, and I had to convince the business that what I was doing was worthwhile and that they should embrace it. And a lot of that involved um, using technology vendors and selling the value of those vendors to my stakeholders. And then I just decided, well, why I am really interested in technology. So I went over the technology side and kind of took this huge leap of faith um, and started out in sales support and then moved into a full like traditional like sales executive type of role um, and and kind of moonlighting as a subject matter expert. Well, I want I want to bring Scott into the fold here because one of the things that Scott and I talked about probably even one of our first episodes was about how I was more of like a traditional graduate student who just went kind of right from undergrad into graduate students. And I didn't know anything. And I was essentially a useless person, but Scott had kind of had a career or at least somewhat of a career before he went back to graduate school. I know that, I think you share that in common with, with Scott Amber. Do you want to talk about that at all? 
yeah, I mean, I would say in grad school, I was definitely the one who was really focused on getting out and getting a job yeah. because I had had a, I had had a career, I had made real money, and then I went back to grad school, and uh, and by real money I mean social work money, so that's debatable. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when I was in grad school, I worked the whole time. So my entire tenure in grad school, I was working. Any opportunity that came my way, I took. Uh, my grad school has a really great alumni network, and I took full advantage of that. I had a job offer for a people analytics role at Whole Foods Global Headquarters three months before I graduated. And they were like, nope, we get it. We will wait for you. We want you. Um, so that was to me, whenever I talk to graduate students, I'm like, do not just be a student. You need to start getting experiences. Don't commit yourself to one place. You're a student. You can hop around, like do something for six months and go somewhere else. Um, but then you're also building your network. And then you can use that network, hopefully, to advance your career post-grad. How, how did like being a social worker, you know, seeing all the sort of uh, spectrum of things that a social worker sees, help you come into an IO role, IO grad program, and, you know, provide a different perspective? and you know further your career so i would say for me it's like i think that i just am able to see things from a slightly different perspective i don't um like things at work do not stress me out i don't think i've ever would say i've been like incredibly stressed out by my work because i'm always like well no one's safety is at stake this isn't that big of a deal like calm you, you've down, seen everyone. bigger issues than <laughs> yeah we didn't quite hit the reliability figure we want to on this <laughs> survey or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I think the other side of it is just um, human relationships. So I kind of joke, people will ask me about a sales cycle or a relationship with a client and they'll be like, oh, that's a really tough client. Like, I can't believe that you've done so great with that person or with that relationship. And I'm like, oh, I just, I'm just a human, like being a human with someone else, I like figure them out and then, you know, ad adapt my approach to interact with them as kind of meet them where they are. So I'd say to me, that's like really fundamental, but a lot of people struggle with this whole idea of like meeting people where they are. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it's just helped me, it helps me in people analytics and like selling it to the business. And it's helped me in consulting and sales too. This is where like IO really kind of struggles a bit, like the empathetic approach, we could really borrow some aspects from counseling psychology in the IO programs, which I don't really see a whole lot of cross pollinization. There is mm -hmm. to some degree, but be empathetic to actually sell, sell your skills, sell your insight, et cetera, and uh, find what the client, you know, internal, external needs. You really need this sort of skill. And what would you say, Amber? Because like when I think about those skills, the two that I've tried to employ, which I imagine you probably do this really well, is active listening and then kind of the Rogerian approach of kind of unconditional positive regard. Um, I don't know what, what's been kind of your strategy. And, and, and probably since you're so good at getting along with people, that's probably why you and I get along because you're able to tolerate my <laughs> <laughs> idiosyncrasies, let's call it. <laughs> You're wonderful, Cole. 
Um, I would say, and now I even forgot what you asked me. You like flattered me and now I forgot. Oh, just uh, things that you picked up from being a social worker that could, or from a, like a psychology, like a counseling or social psychology standpoint that help you, you know, dealing with a difficult client or, you know, kind of yeah. like, I think like all politics is local, all pro- problems are relative. Like you, you just kind of mentioned like the magnitude of a problem really is like, well, nobody's getting killed today. So this isn't that big a deal, you know? Yeah. Um, so for me, one of the things I think is just stuck with me is this whole idea of a strength-based approach. So in social work school, they teach you this idea that like literally any situation, any person has strength and you just have to dig for them and find them and then focus on those, emphasize those, and then you can get to like change. You can't get to change if you can't find the good stuff. You have to find the good stuff first, emphasize that, like relate with someone on the good stuff, and then you can like create some change. So in people analytics work, to me, I think of this as like, you can't walk into a meeting with a stakeholder and tell them that the, whatever they're doing is total crap and mm-hmm. that's not working. Like you cannot do that. You have to figure out what they think is going well and relate with them on that, have some conversation with them and then ask them like, well, what would you want to be better? Like what, what if this could be emphasized? What if you could do this more? What else would you want? It just starts the conversation in a different light than starting the conversation on the negative. That's the whole kind of philosophy of the strength-based approach. I, I love when people say like, oh, I want you to disagree with me. I want you to like, be blunt. Tell me everything. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't it's want a trap. that at all. It's a trap. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they don't want that at all. No way. <laughs> so you, you're at uh, Whole Foods. And you're doing mm-hmm. your thing. How do you transition over to the tech sales area? So there's a really seamless transition when you're an internal HR role um, where your vendors get to know you because they work with you. And then oh, you, yes. can, you form relationships with these people and you know their tech because you've used their tech. So you can kind of vet out um, like how much of a dumpster fire would it be if I went over there or do I know what I'm getting into? Um, so that was my transition. Um, Higher View was a vendor at Whole Foods uh, that I worked with pretty closely. I really respected the team that I worked with. And no offense, Scott, but when Amazon acquired Whole Foods, I decided I was out of there. Um, so I reached out to some people and Higher View was one of those. And they had a role um, at that time. It was a business transformation consultant role that seems like a good fit for me. So I pursued that. I mean, really, like, that makes a lot of sense in terms of building strong relationships and kind of using it to parlay into your next role. But once you, like, took the role, was it, like, a culture shock? Was it difficult? Like, I just imagine it being really, really challenging. And I'm, I'm sort of asking for a friend here, wink, wink, because, uh, <laughs> you know, I've got, uh, you know, sort of an announcement coming in the next few weeks. That I, so I'm pretty curious in this regard. So tell, tell me about it, Amber. So... Cole, you will appreciate this, that salespeople have a certain reputation and you, when you take on a role like this, you're fully embedded in the sales organization. Um, Specifically, if you're in a sales support role, you are kind of 
at their beck and call in, in some sense of the word, like you are their subject matter expert. So that can be difficult to navigate in the beginning. The personalities are a lot different than I was used to. Uh, the culture is can be different. It depends on the sales organization. The sales organization that I walked into at Higher View was um, unique in the sense that there were a lot of women. So women in enterprise sales is incredibly rare. And that team was stacked with a lot of really strong female leadership and female account executives. So to me, the dynamics were different than if I had walked into a really male-dominated environment. My boss was a female too. Not that gender dynamics are the whole thing, but when you're talking sales organizations, I think it makes a huge difference in the general culture of the team and are they willing to guide and develop you or not. How so? How what what kind of difference do you see in there? Like how how are the yeah? But I'm curious so, too. Like, is this the legacy of like the Mad Men three martini lunch, all guys sitting around the table, or like what what do you know any kind of root causes there? Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a root cause other than I think it is just kind of legacy. It's it's been a male dominated industry or, or profession for a while i think there's a lot of negative stereotypes about sales um and so sure. i think those negative stereotypes about sales keep certain people out of it or historically have i think it has changed significantly in the past like five to ten years i think it's changed pretty significantly and there's a lot more non quote-unquote non-traditional people entering sales and i think that the market is shifting away from kind of those stereotypes of like the sleazy sales persona. Cause I think that's kind of the worst stereotype is that like really sleazy <laughs> used car salesman trying to sell you some software. Right. So yeah, I, I think about like uh, the sales life is like, you know, cutthroat kind of bullshit artist sort of person, but you, you're saying you, you saw a different dynamic when you went into this role. Is that what you're saying? Because yeah, it was yeah, more so. female dominated, you believe? I mean, that's my, that was my take on it as a woman right. walking in. Um, the, the men in the sales organization were also uh, very supportive. And I never felt that there was any sleaziness or like cutthroat yeah. competition. I, there was a collaborative environment, which I was not personally expecting when I walked in. Um, there is always a high pressure component if you need to get stuff done. If you don't, if you don't get it done, or if something gets messed up, you have to hold people accountable. You're not hitting numbers, but um, to me, it was. I was surprised at the amount of collaboration and acceptedness of like bringing someone new in. Yeah, I think about that, and I, it's it's probably you know I feel like sometimes females have like a hidden superpower of being able to empathize with the customer. So I imagine that probably really benefited your firm or the, the fir that firm and then the firm that you're at now as well, just having kind of that additional superpower of sorts. I, I saw a stat recently and it was some of the fact of for a male to have uh, the median em empathetic ability of a woman, they would need to be at the 85th percentile, so like a full standard deviation above other males. So, I mean, like you're, you're talking about like a, a rare set of males to even go into, you know, or have mm -hmm. such an outlook. Life. Yeah, I could see that. That tracks. <laughs> that, that, tracks that's, that tracks what you're saying. 
<laughs> so, so what, are the, what are the biggest challenges that you're facing now? Like you're in this like uh, IO sales tech role. So I would say in the role that I'm in now, it, sometimes it's just navigating the different, like each organization is different that I talk to. And then you have finite time and interest of those individuals making the best use of everyone's time and then making sure, honestly, just that they want to talk to me again. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's the number one challenge. Um, and once you get over that hump, then it's all about the organizational barriers of um, budget and buying process. And I think just the um, environment that we're in right now is very uncertain for a lot of organizations. And so that uncertainty can create you know, some a little bit of like nerves if you're in a sales role and you're selling a fast HR technology that it's not required for someone to do their job. Well, I wonder, is there anything kind of unique to the IO psychology or people analytics market um, versus maybe different markets? And is there anything like where your background and expertise really sets you apart? I would definitely say when so I, I have a number of ways I can introduce myself on a phone call depending on the audience and if I use IO psychologist people are always shocked and they're like wait but how, how did how did your CEO convince an IO psychologist to do sales what are, what is happening here um, so there's a level of intrigue which I think helps like the level of interest of wanting to have another conversation just to figure out what's happening here um, and then I just I would say it's, I don't know. Like to me, I think sales is a lot of times luck. Like people yeah. probably don't want to, my boss wouldn't want to hear me say that, but I think so much of it is luck. Don't worry. They're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's funny. Well, I, I'm curious though. Does, do you feel like since you're kind of talking about it all the time, I would imagine, do you feel like it's easier or more difficult to kind of stay up to date with like current research or, the hottest topics that are going on in the field? So I think you, you can tend to get tunnel vision with like your company's position, your company's product and philosophy. The way that I try to keep, on, keep up on things is um, I do have you know, the David Green's monthly uh, list of top HR articles just came out today. I think Cole, you were featured on there yet again. Um, Look at Cole. Hey, <laughs> and this podcast was for the second month in a row. Mm -hmm. they, we had yeah. Amy last month and then Max this month. I mean, we are on a great trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so yeah, I, I think we need I would, uh, you to come on and be our sales arm, clearly, right? Right. Yeah. I could do that. I've got so much free time. We can pay you <laughs> ones of dollars to do it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, maybe maybe we transition now. One of the things that we're kind of toying around with, Amber, is having different segments on the podcast, like in, in trying to, I don't know, bring some structure to it, because sometimes we meander a little bit. Scott, mm -hmm. I know you had an article that you had read this week that you wanted to kind of bounce around with Amber and I. Do you want to talk about that at all? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> All right. No. Next topic. No, no, I, I kid. So, like, would uh, y'all consider yourself cynical by nature? 
I would say I have a room in my mind palace that is somewhat cynical. <laughs> I, ever, I, I, won't, I won't hold you the same fire. This new study out of the, the uh, Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, and it's a worldwide sub- study of 200,000 people, and it found that cynical people, although they're thought of as smarter, you know, we see this person that's always like disagreeable uh, with the other rest of the room, et cetera. In reality, they tend to test lower on cognitive ability and competency tests. And the authors take a evolutionary perspective, and it, it really makes sense. So there, there's a slew of studies, and uh, they show the relationship between trust, health, and finances, and found that uh, thinking the worst tends to lead to worse results in terms of earnings and you know, well-being. But at the lowest levels of competency, you know, holding a cynical worldview might actually be an adaptive strategy to these folks, you know, that they can avoid the potential costs of being, uh, you know, cheated or falling prey to the others' cunnings that are trying to uh, manipulate them. Uh, so I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. These people that are just like curmudgeonly don't want to agree to anything, they really have low levels of confidence competent rather is this like a dunning kruger thing sort of you know like where the less you know the more competent you think you are or is it is it not related to that at all i don't think it's really related to that it's more like you have the cognitive ability to uh tease apart different strategies and proceed down a path that will be most advantageous to you However, if you have a very closed worldview, you're always protected. You're always protected because you never agree to anything. I'm curious what Amber thinks before I, I jump into this. I mean, like the anti-worldview of mine, I'm like, I very strongly believe in manifesting like positive yes. things. If you, if, you think, if you think positively and you, you just plan, like it'll all work out and things will happen and will all come together. I, I would not. I'm married to a very cynical man. But I am not <laughs> cynical. Would you would you describe him as competent? I would describe him as competent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to, right? I'm required. Oh yeah, you have to. You're you're on the record here. Well, I wonder, is that like the basis of the secret? Do you guys know what the secret is? Have you ever heard of this? No, what's that? I think it's like the basis of like like when people talk about like vision boards, like I'm going to put a, on my vision board, like a picture of the beach or I'm going to have a house at the beach someday and a Ferrari and, you know, a really attractive partner and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, um, but it, it's, I think it's like basically use positive thoughts to manifest it. Again, I think the secret is baloney, but, but uh, that's, that's from what I understand. That's kind of the premise behind it is like, if you just believe it'll manifest itself kind of thing. I mean, there, there is something to be said about keeping an open mind. You keep an open mind, therefore you're open to different opportunities, different uh, ideas, and therefore you can start uh, connecting the dots, either internally or externally. And this is how the innovation process works, really. You start connecting different dots, building on the ideas of others. But if you're always closed and thinking the worst of everything, eh, nothing's going to happen. Kind of like Amber said, you know, uh, uh, you're never going to get ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the cynical take here would be like if you stockpile for the end of the world and the end of the world actually happens, you will be one of the few, few survivors of the end of the world. And so there is an evolutionary basis, <laughs> Scott, I guess, like what you said. 
but uh, in most circumstances, it's probably detrimental to your social life, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I was I was put a little on blast there. I was like, Scott's just calling me out for being disagreeable and saying oh. I'm not confident. <laughs> like, okay, man, thanks, buddy. I'm glad to do the podcast with you too. Well, well, think think about from the other angle, like the person in the office that is always disagreeable in that way, and they are thought of as kind of a sage person like oh this person is kind of like seen around corners etc but in fact you know this this data essentially shows that they're just closed off or perhaps even less competent than that normal employee maybe so do you think well let's let's kind of put a, a practical spin on this how would an organization optimize this research from like a people analytics point of view or how would you productize it, maybe, Amber? Or would you productize yeah, it? Yeah, S- Sell it to us, Amber. Um, <laughs> let's see. I mean, I feel like this is right up, maybe perhaps like butter up, Sally. Um, it could, could lead really well into like coaching and development. You know, um, I almost feel like the, the flip side of this, if you're thinking organizationally, like perhaps these really like, you know, cynical people maybe they're just your core performers like they're probably not going to take chances they're probably not mm-hmm. going to like try new things they're not to me having like a manifesting outlook is someone who i'm setting goals like to me that's like manifesting to me just means i'm setting goals which then i'm working towards things and i'm ambitious and i'm doing things so to me that's kind of how i would flip this is like are these cynical people who are closed off just more likely to be this more narrow focus and they're kind of your just your core performers within the organization and you need a certain number of those in your organization to keep things moving so perhaps it's you know finding the balance of like how many of these individuals is optimal versus detrimental yeah i think that's a really uh good point uh there there is an element of every organization that needs to be risk adverse they need to run the business and if something's working, you don't need to revolutionize at every step uh, either. But like, you're kind of like tangentially, like uh, we're kind of alluding to agreeableness and what we're talking about uh, isn't necessarily agreeableness. But th- there was a study by I think Denise Owens, Denise Ones. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Owens, but Ones. I may be wrong. I'm not, well, I'm not sure. Well, if, if you're around, come, come chastise us at PSYOP next year. Come, we'll have a go have a beer later. But they had a study, essentially, it's a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. probably came out like January, earlier this year, it doesn't really matter. But essentially, uh, like 2 million folks included, and they showed that uh, agreeableness related to like 95% of the uh, life outcomes that they measured. In, so in, in what way? Like how? Like me, they I'll were like nicer people it. and then the good things happen to them or nicer people and then the bad things happen to them. That's a really important distinction, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if I can, I have it right here. One second. So let's see. Self-transcendent, transcendence, uh, contentment in life, uh, relational investment, team working, uh, work investment, lower results, emphasis social norm orientation and social integration are the big taxonomy that they provide here, which I'm not sure that directly answers your question. I think that just means they get along better. Um, 
to put uh, anti-scientific or not anti-scientific, but unscientific language on it. It does say agreeableness had a desirable effect on 93% of the variables and outcome. Interesting. Okay. Eh, anyway. Well, I want to, I want to come back to something you were saying, Amber, because you used the word coaching earlier, right? And, and given, I may be asking you to go in the way back machine to like social working days, but I've had this, this kind of catch 22 when it comes to coaching people based on traits that I've never been able to kind of get square in my mind, which is this thought of like, let's say you have a really disagreeable person and they get the feedback that, Hey, you're super disagreeable. Maybe you could be a little bit more agreeable, it, but disagreeableness is a trait, meaning that mm-hmm. it's really one of these things that's considered relatively stable throughout your life. How is it okay? Or like, how is it effective to coach people on something that they're probably not going to get better at? Right? Like, I don't know. How do we square that? Because yeah. like, I've seen this across, it, it doesn't have to be just disagreeableness. Yeah. It could be any trait. And people, they, it's yeah. like they keep banging their head against the wall for like 30 years. Like, and I'll, I'll use a quick story. I was talking to a colleague of mine who, um, who had been in the workforce for like 40 years um, at a previous company. And they looked in like a box where they had stored some stuff and they found a coaching report from when they were like brand new. And they said, and it made them so depressed because they were still working on all the same stuff 40 years later <laughs> yeah. that they were being coached on when they were just starting out. Yeah. So, I think it's less about coaching in the sense of like, you need to change who you are and more about learning and developing coping mechanisms, right? So having a level of awareness of what the problem is or perceived problem is from your interactions with others, and then what are some coping mechanisms? Like, do you just need to remove yourself from certain situations so that you don't respond in a certain way? Do you need to send an email instead of speak in a meeting? Do you need to, like, so there are things I think that people can think through in terms of how can I leverage what I am good at. So again, kind of that strength space perspective of there's a flip side to all of these kind of coaching conversations that there are good things that this person can do. Um, and then there are certain kind of coping mechanisms. And I think if they are have enough self-awareness, so I think that's kind of the problem is the level of self-awareness of the individual to then be able to recognize or have someone who's good enough to tell them some coping mechanisms from alternate because they're never going to change who they are fundamentally. I think that's wise. I think I wonder, uh, <laughs> the thing I wonder is like that, that's a very measured approach. And I was thinking like a lot of times somebody's boss won't take such a measured approach when trying to coach them, but that's probably another discussion for another mm-hmm. day. I don't know. Maybe we move into Another segment, one of the things that Scott and I have been talking about is sort of like, how can we stay up to date on the latest gossip um, and, <laughs> and, you know, try to be relevant, sort of like, you know, the directionally correct keeping up with the Kardashian segment here or something. I'm not sure. But uh, uh-huh. I, I keep seeing these articles like they're will they won't they articles, but it's not like Will Ross and whatever the other person on Friends will get together. Um, it's will Apple send people back to the office or not? Because they keep having all this return to the office drama. I don't know. Are mm-hmm. you up to date on this at all, Amber, or anything? You have any thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, I feel like every time I see another like another uprising of the Apple employees, I think about the um, 
to Zimbardo um, prisoner guard study, that Stanford prison study from the 70s, when they created these fake roles and then people went fully into the roles and there was like a prisoner uprising and then the guards like were really harsh. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's what's happening at Apple. <laughs> Zimbardo prisoner guard study. So who who are the prisoner guards there? Um, so I would say like the Apple employees feel like they're the prisoners who are being told like, no, you have to like you have to come back and be put in your little cell yeah. essentially. And then the the Apple employees, the executives, like for really no, from what I've seen, no like actual reason, no like enforcing this stringent rule other other than that they just think it's important. Yeah, uh, from what I've seen, uh, they wanted to bring back employees on, I think it was like Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, you mm-hmm. know, three days a week, et cetera. And the employees or a group of employees uh, started a petition that was being circulating around other employees. And uh, Apple immediately backed off and said, okay, yeah. just uh, Wednesday and Thursday and another day with you you wouldn't let your manager decide that day which uh, you know we'll, we'll see how that works out it's, it's a bold choice cotton as they say in dodgeball you know yeah <laughs> but <laughs> uh from from what i understand tim Cook believes that uh in-person meeting uh really lubricate the innovation mm-hmm. cycle which i don't think he's wrong i think he's absolutely correct in that but i also understand that employees love the shit out of working from home and don't want to deal yeah. with Bay Area traffic. And I get that. Yeah. 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 I have um I have way too many of these kind of theories, but I have like the ex-boyfriend problem when it comes to this. So this is gonna be my so like like let's say you're trying to like um you know you're in the dating context and you want to you're you're you went on a date with someone and it went really well and then all of a sudden they quit returning your phone calls and your texts right and and i think like yeah you're getting ghosted but i I always thought it's like well and then you find out like six months later they got back together with their ex-boyfriend right so it wasn't it wasn't you it was this third body problem of like something else that happened that affected the issue i i keep thinking that that's something like i hear like jp morgan has had this apple has had this where you have these ceos who are like incredibly adamant about having people back at the office and, and their passion for it seems out of whack with like the research that would support such a strong feeling. And so I keep wondering, like, who's the ex-boyfriend in this scenario? <laughs> and, and in my mind, and this I have no inside information on this. This is completely conjecture and conspiratorial. But um, I, you see Apple's new like headquarters that they built kind of looks like a, yeah. like a spaceship or something. I bet you because I, I have worked for some companies who had things like this happen. I bet you they have some kind of deal with like either a municipal government or the state government or the federal government for some kind of tax incentives that they have to have a certain number of people working at that office to receive those tax incentives. And I bet you that's why they keep pushing them back in the office because they're probably going to have to pay out like billions of dollars otherwise. Again, that's just all like a conspiratorial thought, but I'm like, who's the ex-boyfriend here, you know? There's a, a new segment called uh, Cole's Conspiracy Theory Corner, right? Fire, fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel I, like I, I saw that theory somewhere. The same, the same one. 
Cole's not alone. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we, we talked about this a long time ago. It, it's kind of the antithesis of people analytics who just kind of have a blanket policy. Like, why Monday, Wednesday, Thursday? Are these days less trafficy? Are you more productive these days? Why not? I, I think what we really need in for work from home is experimentation, A, and also optimizing for another variable. We talked with Max about this uh, a couple weeks ago. Like, it, it's not just about bringing people together to collaborate. You can do that very well at home. It's about a uh, secondary goal that you're trying to accomplish. And that goal doesn't necessarily manifest itself in every collaboration, whether it's, you know, trying to discover new ideas or uh, collaborate on a product or trying to launch a product. These are three different phases of like the innovation cycle, and they require different forms of collaboration. And at other times, you don't need innovation is innovations irrelevant. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But I wonder, I wonder if this is a good kind of pivot point to our last segment, which is we're, we're calling kind of like the hipster segment of where Cole digs into something kind of uh, a little bit more, uh, let's call it, be charitable and call it strategic. <laughs> but uh, there, there was this Wired article, and I, I think I sent it to both of you guys, uh, called uh, about the three cities problem, which is based in the, the three body problem from physics. So if you have you know, a planet orbiting or a yeah, planet orbiting around a star or a moon orbiting around a planet, from a physics and a mathematical standpoint, it's really easy to model the movement of those two things if you're trying to project it out into the future. Right? That's called that's a two-body problem. But when you add a third body like a planet and a moon, and then maybe a third moon or something like that, it mm -hmm. like science and, and math have still yet to this day been able have not been able to figure out a way to model that out into the future. And so what this article posits, which has really got my wheels spinning in regards to like the relationship to people analytics is the three cities problem. And the city being a metaphor for a concept with Jerusalem kind of being the, the, the metaphor for, for faith or for religion, with Athens being the metaphor for um, reason and science. And then they add in this, because those have kind of been at war for thousands of years, are science and religion, right? Mm -hmm. But the third body that they've added in recently, which is just throwing everybody for a loop in society, is they add Silicon Valley, which they're saying is utility or technology or business value, right? And technology is changing at such a rapid pace that it's really throwing society for a loop. And so I, I was thinking about this in relationship to the adoption of people analytics is a lot of times HR just says, you need to do what we're asking you to do because of faith, <laughs> right? We know the right thing. We are the enlightened priestly caste. You should just listen to us. And executives go, well, actually, where is the science to support this? or the budget, or the ROI, or whatever it may be, and, and HR is kind of taking a step back for a second. But one of the things that I've, and why I've, I've, I've kind of had a career on this, is just starting with utility, doing what works, and, and only that, and, and then moving to the science, and then moving to the faith. 
And so I wanted to get you guys perspective on that. Have you have you think, thought about this kind of relationship between how much faith it takes a customer to put our stuff into place, or maybe even on the sales side, the faith it takes for somebody to buy your product and ha- what relationship that has to proof and evidence, but also to the utility of it in the same way? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a lot more heady perspective than I usually take. Um, I don't usually go to some philosophy, <laughs> um, honestly, Cole, but um, I would say for me, I think for a buyer, it starts with utility. Like they might not identify it this way, but if we're not solving a problem that they have, if we can't, they might not even be able to articulate the problem. So the first part might just be helping them figure out what their problem is, articulate the problem clearly. And then be able to show through, I would say, science that our solution fits that need and can solve it. And then to me, that results in the faith to be able to take the leap. Because I think whenever, one thing I think salespeople maybe forget or, or don't acknowledge fully is that your buyer, whoever that person is, the person who's like signing the contract or your champion, they're putting the reputation on the line within the organization by making this purchase and implementing the technology. So if it fails, chances are it's going to be a black mark on them because they made the decision. Yeah. So they need to recognize the utility, but they're the ones who ultimately have to have the faith, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of kind of wild. I don't know, Scott, do you have any thoughts here that I completely lose you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm still kind of struggling with the... Uh three different levels here, but my mind is immediately going to like a Messiah complex or something like that. So you need to have trust in the IO or whomever's delivering this to uh, get people to follow you and implement whatever solution that you're trying to get after. Um, let me, let me frame it differently, Scott, maybe this will help you out a little bit. I was, I was talking to somebody earlier this week and I was like, and they're going to be a future guest of the podcast, which I'm pretty excited about. And they, the first thing they said to me is people analytics is broken and we have to fix it. And I was like, I'm listening. There you go. You're yeah. Immediately on board. Right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, tell me. I will follow more. you anywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I will buy whatever people analytics solution you're offering here. But, but I, I say that in regards to there's so many times in an organization where you think you know the right solution, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's like an IO research that's been around for a hundred years, or maybe it's a new people analytics technology or whatever, and then nobody wants it, right? And, and so how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? And, and, and I think like the three tools we have are kind of utility, reason, and, and faith. And so I, I'm wondering how you deal with that, Scott. I think I'm still a little cloudy on, uh, you know, what's being asked here, but. Well, how, how do you convince somebody that it's necessary is a simple way of putting it. Well, I can go back to Amber's points. Like first we start with a problem and uh, trying to derive a solution, but people, people's perceptions of reality and what their universe is based off of is their experience. So how well does what you are offering match their previous experience? And then you get like some sort of like real big like philosophy, you know, paradigm shift occur in big chunks in this way. Like you get a little bit of a tipping point from we're not going to accept anything that Cole is offering here to even though it worked to the whole field goes to this area 
And I think we're kind of seeing that with ML right now. People like a are critical starting... mass sort of. Exactly. Or... Yeah. Exactly. Um, I, I have a nerd stat I could deliver, but I won't do that right now. But I think we're starting to see different paradigm shifts in people analytics towards this sort of uh, personalization, towards ML, automation, et cetera. But it's a long time coming. Like Amber mentioned, there's some old school fools here and they're not going to accept everything. Yeah, well, there, there's a reason why I put the hipster segment at the end. So because <laughs> if we just completely went off the rails, like 80% of our listeners are already gone at this point anyway. But I don't know, <laughs> Amber, you, you sort of had, because we were, we were emailing back and forth, you sort of had a question sort of along these lines about from your time at Whole Foods. I don't know, do you want to bring that up now? Yeah, sure. So I think that this still persists, but I obviously am not embedded in the actual practice of people analytics anymore. I'm kind of on the periphery of it. Um, this whole idea of being really siloed and struggling with being siloed within the organization. And the example that I used was like what, during my time on the people analytics team at, in Whole Foods, the, we were literally in the back corner of HR that no one ever went to. And it was referred to as the nerdery. So like no one really understood what we do. <laughs> Love it. They thought it was important. Um, over time, we were able to change that. But the initial thing was just like, that's where all the nerds are. And they just do all their nerdy things over there. I can't say that I haven't experienced that before. Let's call it <laughs> soft discrimination <laughs> based on the nerd capacity of the people analytics team. But I, I, th I wish I had asked you this before I brought up the three cities problem, because I think that's a really that's kind of the reason why I bring it up is because, like, how do we make ourselves relevant or are we just fundamentally the nerds in the corner who are just playing around with data who nobody really understands except for like one or two key leaders? Like, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, Scott, do you experience that at all? Uh, well, I, I got thoughts on this. Uh so I, I I love the idea of being in a nerdery. I've been in many nerderies. And then the question is like, you, you're producing great stuff in this nerdery and like all you guys are like nerding out on it, et cetera. But producing a product or an insight in isolation does no one any good. The goal is to scale it out of that group and get it implemented to other folks. And I think the, the key is uh, social network. You got to have the connections within that group and outside the group to spread that information and then scale it to the rest of the organization. I think that's the real critical. And a lot of nerderies, unfortunately, are very stylish. Yeah, I would say for us, the one way that we ultimately broke out of that stereotype there was we took on additional projects. So there were two IO psychologists on that team and we were able to take on some selection and assessment projects. We we did a ton of work with the employee survey, which I think was the thing that catapulted us. Um, and we were able to just get a lot of visibility within the organization from that employee survey. Conversation with regional um, president, regional vice president. So then they knew who we were and they were like, wait, we have these people who can do this work. What else are they doing? So it kind of happened organically for us through a larger project that got visibility within the organization. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I surveys are a great tool for getting your foot in the door because at least you're speaking the language of other people and you're getting out of the nerdery for a minute. I'm going to keep using this word nerdery. This is, this is great. This is um, going to be the, the segment name from now on, the nerdery. 
Yeah, actually, I really like that. That's going to stick. That's going to stick around. <laughs> what well, I'm wondering, um, I think we're kind of we're kind of at the tail end here. We introduced uh, a concept at, at the end of last episode, so I'll kind of push it again here. But we'd like to have we, we, we were going to have our first analyst hour last week, uh, but our analyst dropped out and I extended the challenge to uh, other, you know, hotshot analysts who may want to join the Directionally Correct podcast, but nobody's reached out yet. So if you if you do have interest in, in being on Analyst Hour, please let us know. And the same with uh, the Stump Colin Scott challenge. Uh, so if you have a problem that either you'd like to be identified or not identified about that you'd like us to discuss on here and maybe kind of, you know, go through some of the complexities of it, please let us know and reach out to us. Uh, we posted the the link to our email address in the show notes, but um, I don't know, uh, Scott, any final words on today's podcast? And then we'll turn it over to Amber to close us out. Amber, I'm, I'm fascinated by your history. I, I think we need more uh, empathetic IO psychs that are super brilliant and uh, research mavens like yourself that can sell products. Uh, super fascinating to meet you. Can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you so much, Scott. It was great to meet you. And um, I'll just, I'll join you anytime if you guys are going to glow me up like this. So um, I'll, <laughs> I'll be, I'll make myself available anytime. Um, it was great to chat with you both um, and had a great time. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Amber. And uh, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Amber West.